We are on Yavamos Peites Amebeis 89b, and we are continuing with our discussion. And our Gemara is now going to discuss the topic of when is Chazal, when are the rabbis allowed, are they ever allowed to create a halacha, to create a rabbinic law, which goes against the Torah. Is that allowed? Is that not allowed? Um, and the Gemara is based off of uh, the previous discussion that we had in the last recording. It was discussing a case where a person is giving truma to the Kohen, the special food that's given to the Kohen, and they give food to the Kohen which is tame, it is impure, and you are not allowed to do that. And so if you do it by accident... So then, even though you're not allowed to do it, it ends up being truma. But if you do it on purpose, if you intentionally give the Kohen impure truma instead of pure truma, impure truma, the Kohen is not allowed to eat. He has to burn it. Uh, so if you do it intentionally, so there was a dispute with regards to the status of that truma. Rav Chista was the, of the opinion that on a rabbinic level, we will say that it is no longer truma. Even though on a biblical level, it works. It is truma. On a rabbinic level, we will say that it is not truma. Why? On a rabbinic level, we decided to say that it's not truma so that we make sure that the law is that the person has to, has to take truma again on, the, on his field. He has to give truma again. If we were to say that what, what you gave before, the impure truma, really is truma, it has, it's impure. If we were to say that it really is truma, so then the person who intentionally gave it will not end up actually giving truma again. He will only give it again if we say, you know what? That which you gave is not truma at all. Uh, so then so then he'll end up giving it again. But the, the big question is, this is what Rabbi's question on Rav Chista is, Amr le'Rav le'Rav Chista, le'didak da'amr es lo'klom kol'ikar da'afilo ha'gir'yu'a ha'da litzvelei, my taima g'zir d'ilma pasha v'lo ma'afresh, make a midi d'mideraisa ha've truma, v'shim d'ilma pasha afku rabbanu l'chulun, v'chibayz den masin l'akar d'avr min ha'torah, Rabbi asks the big question on Rav Chista, how could you ever do this? On a biblical level, this has the status of truma. It has the, holy, the holiness, the status of truma. On a rabbinic level, you're going to tell me that it doesn't have the status of truma. The rabbis decided that it does not have the status of truma because they want to make sure that uh, the person ends up giving truma again. How do they have the right to do this? How do they have the right to uproot what the Torah tells us? These are the, these are the rabbis deciding. How do they have such a right? And so the Gemara now, for the next uh, page and a half, is going to go through many different cases where either it seems like or it actually is a case where the rabbis uh, give a certain ruling which goes against the Torah. And when are they allowed to do that? When are they not allowed to do that? So the Gemara, the reason why we came onto this Gemara is because of our Mishnah, that perhaps is a case in our Mishnah which shows that you are allowed to, the rabbis could create a law which uproots, which goes against uh, the Torah law, what the biblical law has to say. And so the Gemara says, Chisra responds like, Amrlai, Balotizbra, what are you talking about? We have precedent for such a, for, for such a, uh, for such a ruling. Dvahatnan, we have in our Mishnah, Havla Mamzer Mizeh Mizeh. Again, our Mishnah is a case of as follows. The case is where there is one witness who says that a person's husband passed away. She then goes ahead and based on that one witness, the, the based in the court ruled that she's allowed to go ahead and get married to somebody else. She married somebody else, but then the husband shows up. There are many different laws that uh, then apply. One of them is that if she were to have a child from either 
her original husband moving forward, or from the second husband, the child is a mamzer. The child is a mamzer and then is only allowed to marry other mamzerim. They cannot marry other Jews. Uh, it's a child from an illicit relationship. The Gemara says, I understand that if you have a child from this second husband, the child is a mamzer because it's not really a husband. Your, your first husband was alive the whole time. You were never married to your second husband. So if you're never married to your second husband, it's, it's viewed as adultery. And the, ch- the child from that relationship would be a mamzer. But if you go back to your first husband, how could you say that the child is a mamzer? It'll end up happening that uh, this. if you go back to your first husband, it's true, you're not allowed to go back to your first husband, but if you do, it's not viewed as a severe prohibition. She, they're still, it's still your first husband, and he's a Yisrael. How could we say that the child is a mamzer? If we say that the child is a mamzer, then that child can then marry another mamzer, and that's not allowed. A regular Jew is not allowed to marry a mamzer. Only a mamzer is allowed to marry a mamzer. If we give the halachic status of this child as a mamzer, then he's going to go ahead and marry another mamzer, and that's not allowed. It's not allowed because from a Torah law, uh, the child is not a mamzer. And so since by Torah law, the child is not a mamzer, the child cannot marry uh, another another mamzer. So, so how could it be that the rabbi said, no, this child is a mamzer, if by Torah law, the child is not a mamzer? So Amar Lei Hachi Amar Shmuel Aser b'Mamzeres V'Chein Ki Aser Rabbi Amar Biyochanan Aser b'Mamzeres V'Amai Karele Mamzer Lo Osro Bebas Yisrael. So basically, they explain that no, really, we never meant to say, we never said that this child is a mamzer with regards to the fact that he's allowed to another, he's allowed to marry another mamzer. No, we were really being stringent. What were we saying? That he he's, he cannot marry a Yisrael. The child is viewed as a mamzer in the sense that of the stringency that he cannot marry a regular Jew, but he also can't marry a mamzer. He's not allowed to marry either one. We're being stringent. Then ends up being a question: Who could he marry? Who could this child marry? If he can't marry a regular Jew, he can't marry a mamzer. Who could he marry? Perhaps he can marry a convert. Perhaps he can marry a convert. Uh, but because of the stringency, so therefore it is not uprooting uh, the Torah. Now it's interesting. Rashi points out that who said that astringency is not viewed as uprooting the Torah? In the end of the day, you are saying something which is different from the Torah. The Torah is being lenient and saying that this person uh, could marry a Yisrael. The rabbis are coming along and saying that, no, he cannot marry a regular Jew, a regular Yisrael. How do they have the right to do that? It's true they're being stringent, but how do they have the right to do that? So Rashi explains, no, it's not viewed as uprooting the Torah because this is really creating a fence around the Torah. Anytime that they're creating a fence around the Torah, they are protecting the Torah. That is allowed. And by being stringent in this case, they are protecting the Torah. So in the end of the day, our case of our Mishnah is not an example of the rabbis creating a law which goes against the Torah because it's really just about being stringent. The, the child from the, uh, from the first husband moving forward, if they have a, if they have a child together, so then that child is a mamzer in the sense that he cannot marry another Jew, but he also cannot marry another mamzer, because the Torah said that he's not a, he's not a mamzer. Only the rabbis uh, made this penalty to say that the child is a mamzer, and so it's only with regards to the fact that he cannot marry a regular Jew. Okay, the Gemara now is going to move on to a potential example number two, where we find uh, that the rabbis seem to go against uh, the Torah, the Torah's law. So the Gemara says, Shalach le Rav Chista the Rabbah, Rav Chista sent to Rabbah, Biyad Rav Achabar Rav Huna. 
through the messenger of Rav Achabar Rav Huna, the son of Rav Huna. So he basically says, He really is coming to tell me that the court does not have the ability to uproot a law. Essentially, they have. do they have the right to, uh, don't they have the right to uh, to change and, uh, and go against the biblical law? You're telling me that they don't, but I can prove to you that they do, says Rav Chista. What's the case? Because we have the following b'risa. In order to understand the following b'risa, a little bit of an introduction. Introduction is as follows. By Torah law, a husband inherits from his wife. When the wife passes away, the husband inherits from his wife. If a woman is not married, so then who inherits her, her estate? It goes to her father. It goes to her father and to her father's family. Okay? That is part one. Part two is that by biblical law, a father has the right to marry off his daughter um, even if she is if she is not uh, if she's if she's a minor if she's if she's a minor so then he has the right to marry her off that's by biblical law everyone today says that you cannot do this it's not it's not right and it's not allowed uh, but that by by biblical Torah law the father has the right to marry off his daughter when she is a minor if the husband if the, sorry if the father passes away so there is a concern that uh, she won't be able to get married or uh, she, she'll have a difficult time getting married. So as a result of that, the rabbi said that on a rabbinic level, she can get married on a rabbinic level. Her mother can marry her off on a rabbinic level as a minor. Um, and it, it works as a rabbinic marriage. That is viewed as a rabbinic marriage. And so the she has now as a minor, she has the right uh, when her mother marries her off to back out of the marriage when she, at the age of 12. Once she becomes an adult, a halachic adult, so then she has the right to back out of the marriage. Uh, but until then, she's viewed as married to that person. Again, we don't do this today, but uh, that was the ruling that the rabbi said. They created this rabbinic form of a marriage. And so the Gemara now is discussing what happens if this wife passes away while she is still a minor. So she was married off by her mother. It's a rabbinic marriage. Uh, but she passes away as a minor. So if she passes away as a minor, so then... Um, who inherits her her property, her estate? Uh, who gets it? Does it go back to her father's family, uh, or does it go to her husband? Because this is only a rabbinic marriage. So the bride says as follows: When is a person? When do they inherit from their wife, their wife who is a minor? So we have three different opinions. Beishamai says. That it's only once she really basically reaches the age of adulthood, she becomes a halachic adult. She becomes twelve, and she already reached puberty. So that's when uh, a husband is allowed to inherit from his, excuse me, from his his wife who was a minor. But when they were originally married, uh, as a rabbinic marriage, but only once she becomes an adult, and she did not uproot the marriage. The point is that she didn't do me and she there's an option of her backing out. She did not back out and she becomes an adult. That's when he could inherit, even though the original marriage was a rabbinic marriage. Basil says that no, it doesn't even have to be that, as we'll see. It's just when uh, if they have a chuppah, if they have a chuppah, if they get halachically married, not just the engagement, but the actual marriage. So then even though it's a rabbinic marriage, so then he inherits from his wife. Rebbe Lezer says that no, it's when they have 
sexual relations, and we'll see from the Gemara in a second that it doesn't just mean that they have sexual relations, but she becomes an adult, a halachic adult, and they have sexual relations. Um, what happens then, whatever the age is, we have this three-way dispute, when exactly does this take place? It's a three-way dispute. Uh, either way, whether it's when she becomes a halachic adult and she didn't up, undo the marriage, or whether it's whenever she gets halachically married on a rabbinic level, or it's when she first has sexual relations as an adult, these are three different opinions, but whenever that happens, so the following rulings apply. Viyorsha, the husband now inherits from her. Umetamela, and if he's a Kohen, even though a Kohen in general is not allowed to go to a cemetery, for an immediate relative, he's allowed to. And so then in this case too, he's allowed to, for the purposes of the burial, he's allowed to go to uh, bury her and become impure through coming in contact with a, with a, with a dead person. And and also she has a benefit within this rabbinic marriage. She is now allowed to eat truma. Uh, that is the ruling. So just uh, before we get to the big question of how could the rabbis do this if they're going against the Torah, the Gemara just analyzes two of these opinions. And it goes back and it says, says that once she reaches the age of adulthood, she's 12, then everything works. Does that mean that they never got halachically married? There was no chuppah? So rather it means Essentially, Beishamai says that it only becomes a, a complete marriage where she can't back out of it if there's A, there has to be a chuppah. Everybody agrees there has to be a chuppah. Beishamai said there also has to be a chuppah. But Beishamai says to Beishamai that you hold that as long as there's a chuppah alone, that, that's what creates this marriage. No, I'm of the opinion that it becomes a complete marriage once there's a chuppah and she reaches the age of adulthood. That's all within Beishamai. Rabbi Lezer, Omer, no, Mishetivayel. Ay, Vam Rabbi Lezer, Ein Maisekatan, Ketana Klum, Ema Mishetagdo Vativayel. According to Rabbi Lezer, Rabbi Lezer says that they have to have sexual relations. Problem is, Rabbi Lezer says elsewhere that uh, as a katana, as a minor, it's, it does, it's meaningless. It's not with complete halachic intent. Uh, so it means that they had sexual relations after she became an adult. After the age of 12, that's when they have sexual relations. And then at that point in time, that's what really completes the marriage. But the whole point to bring all of this down is the Gemara says, Ketani Mias, Yorsha how could this work? This is all a rabbinic marriage. This is the the husband. The, sorry, the father passed away. The mother is marrying off uh, her daughter, who is a minor, to somebody. This works as a rabbinic marriage. It's a rabbinic marriage, which means on a biblical level, she is not viewed as married. If on a biblical level she's not viewed as married, that means on a biblical level, if she dies, her father's family should. Inherit from her. It should go to her father's family. Even if her father's not alive, it should go to the next one online. It should go to her father's family. So how could the rabbi say, no, this is a rabbinic marriage and we're going to move money around? How is that going to work? Um, how could they move it around? Uh, because then the rabbi said that really the husband is the one that inherits. How could the husband inherit if on a biblical level uh, her, fa- her father's family inherits? It seems to be a ruling which goes against the Torah. So to this, the Gemara answers a very important concept called Hefker, based in Hefker. So the Gemara answers Hefker, based in Hefker. There's a concept called Hefker, based in Hefker, which means that a person's monetary possessions, the rabbis have the right 
to, to take that away. They have the right to take that away. That they, your money is only yours. It's only your possession because the rabbis have stated that and have agreed upon that it is yours. But the rabbis have the right to take that away. This is a right that's given to the rabbis based on two different verses. Now, there is a discussion. Uh, do they only have the right to take away your money or do they also have the right to take it away and to give it to somebody else? Um, so what right do they exactly have? Maybe it's also dependent on the exact source. But there are two sources for this idea. One comes from the book of Ezra and one comes from the book of Yeshua, of Joshua. Shanamra, the verse says, Kol asher lo yavo this is Ezra. Ezra was during the times of the beginning of the return to the land of Israel for the beginning of the building of the second temple, of the second base of Migdash. And Ezra said that anybody who doesn't come, if they don't come, so then we are going to take away their possessions because the rabbis have the right to take away their possessions. It's, it's a certain power that's given to the court. So that's one source. Rabbi Lazar gives a different source. It's based on the following verse by Yoshua, by Joshua, the first time they conquered the land of Israel. The verse says that this is the land which Elazar the Kohen got received and Yoshua received, and also the Rashi Ha'avos, the heads of the Avos of the fathers of the tribes. The Gemara asks, Why does the verse call it as the heads of the fathers? Just say the heads of the tribes. Why say the heads of the fathers of the tribes? The purpose, the reason why they connect the two is to teach us this very law. That just like uh, a father has the right to inherit to his children, so too, that which he wants, um, so too the heads, the heads of the, the shevet of the tribe, meaning the heads of the court, they have the ability to inherit to the nation because of this principle called Hefker, based in Hefker. The court has the right to decide whether uh, your your monetary possessions actually belong to you. And this is a very, very important concept uh, that, that what's yours is yours, but only based on the consent of the court. And they have the right to take that away. Okay, and so therefore that solves that question. How is it possible that on a rabbinic marriage that uh, the inheritance can be transferred over to, um, to the, to the to the husband instead of to the father's family. So the answer to that is that the rabbis have control. They have this control. They have this power to transfer money as they see fit. So that would, it's, is it going against the Torah? It's not going against the Torah because this is the power that they have. This is the power that the Torah gave them. But what about the next issue? Uh, how could this be? How could this be that the husband has the right, if he's a Kohen, he has the right and the obligation really to bury his wife and to become impure? On a biblical level, he has no right. He's not married on a biblical level. It's only a rabbinic marriage. On a biblical level, the father should be the one who buries her. And if the father's a Kohen, he's allowed, he should be allowed to uh, bury her. How could it be that the husband uh, has a right to bury her if on a biblical level they're not viewed as married? So the Gemara first wants to answer Mishim Dahavala Meis Mitzvah. The reason why is because this is referred to as the category of Meis Mitzvah, of some, uh, to, to bury a deceased person, which is the ultimate mitzvah. We will see that the concept of a Meis Mitzvah doesn't mean any burial. 
is 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 the is the mace mitzvah is the mitzvah that it's referring to of a mace mitzvah. What it's referring to is if there's nobody else who could bury, there's nobody else around to bury, and we have this uh, deceased person, whoever uh, takes it upon themselves to bury this person, that's referred to as a mace mitzvah. The mace mitzvah is nobody else is around to bury. It's your obligation now. You're the one who's there. It's your obligation. And so the Gemara now was saying that this woman, with regards to her husband, is a mace mitzvah. He's the one who has to bury. The Gemara says, who says this is true? Me have a mace mitzvah. What do you mean he's the only one who could bury? If there are other people who are readily available, they'll do it. And she has a whole family. It's true. She, on a rabbinic level, she was married to her husband. She has a mother. She has brothers. She has a whole family who would want to be involved in her burial, who are very close with her. So why are we saying that only the husband is the one who's he's the closest one to be involved in this burial? We have others as well. So the Gemara answers, no. Hachanami kevan delo yarsila karya anula. So the Gemara answers, and we'll explain what exactly this answer is. But the Gemara initially, it seems like the Gemara is answering that no, since in the end of the day, as we pointed out a minute ago, uh, the her the rest of her family is not going to be getting her estate. It's going to be going to her husband because the rabbis decided since this is a rabbinic marriage, it'll go to her husband. So since they don't get anything, they're going to say we don't want to be involved in the marriage. We're not in, in the in the burial. We're not going to be involved in the burial. That's what they're saying. Since we're not going to be inheriting anything, we're not going to be involved in the burial. Now Tosos explains that cannot be what the Gemara means based on various proofs that he brings, that it cannot be that just because you are the one who inherits, therefore you have to you have to be the one who's involved in the burial. Rather, he explains a very interesting idea. He says, and he discusses this in a few t- places, he says that we are discussing how do the rabbis have the right, do they have the right ever to uproot and to say something which is against the Torah. And so the answer here is essentially saying that because we want a rabbinic marriage, and it's so important to have this concept of a rabbinic marriage for the mother to marry off his, her daughter as a minor to make sure that uh, she she does get married, um, and we want to maintain this as a that it looks like a, a, a real marriage. So therefore, the rabbis said something which is true on a Torah level. Uh, only her her family, her her father, her mother, uh, the siblings should be involved in the burial. Uh, and should have an obligation to bury her. And even if they're Kohanim, they should be the ones who bury her. But because the rabbis uh, created this, instituted this, and this fits, it's, it fits, it's logical, and it fits with Torah values, whatever that means, it's a vague idea, but it fits with Torah values. Therefore, they have the right to say something which seemingly goes against the Torah. At first glance, goes against the Torah. But they have the right to make such a ruling if it, if it fits with the values, even by the technical letter of the law, it wouldn't necessarily fit, but it fits within the values of the Torah. So therefore, they have the right to uproot the Torah. Now, that's very, it's very and so therefore, so to here, they have the right to say that we want to view this as a real marriage. The husband should be the one who should bury her. Even if he's a Kohen, he should go out of his way to bury her. So it's a fascinating idea. It's very difficult to know how far to take this. Uh, and uh, one has to be extremely, extremely cautious because... No one knows what exactly fits with the Torah values, but the rabbis of the Gemara, of the Talmud, they knew that this would fit with a Torah value. But it's a very important opinion. One last line in the Gemara. The Gemara asks the third ruling with regards to this rabbinic marriage. Again, number one was that the husband inherits instead of her father's family. 
And we explain that works through Hefker, Bez, and Hefker. The rabbis have the right to move around uh, the money. Number two is the fact that the husband, if he's a Kohen, he, he, A, he has an obligation to bury her, and he be, could become impure. So to that we answered, essentially, he's the one, the rabbis decided he's the one that has to be involved. It's, uh, it should be on him. Um, number three, the third ruling was Volchel's Beginob, Truma. She's now allowed to eat the Truma. She, she's married on a rabbinic level. She's now allowed to eat Truma. How could she eat Truma? It's true. A wife of a Kohen is allowed to eat Truma. The Kohen could eat Truma. The wife could eat Truma. But she's only a, a, a wife of a Kohen on a rabbinic level if she marries a Kohen. It's only, it's only on a rabbinic level. It's not on a biblical level because she got married by her mother as a minor. How could it be that she's allowed to eat Truma? So to that, the answers were it's limited. You're right. It's Petruma Durabanan. She's only allowed to eat to the Truma, which is only Truma on a rabbinic level. The rabbi said it's a rabbinic marriage. So then so the rabbis could also say she's allowed to eat Truma, which is only Truma on a rabbinic level. Not all produce is Truma. It could be, have the status of special food given to the Kohen. On a biblical level, some of it is only obligated on a rabbinic level. And so only the food that's obligated on a rabbinic level and viewed as Truma on a rabbinic level, only that type of food is she allowed to eat. The Gemara will continue further. Uh, moving on to Daf Tzadi, to page 90. We've reached 90 pages of Yevamos. Um, and we'll continue to try to bring other cases which seem to go against, the, the rabbinic ruling seems to go against the Torah.